Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is David Norling. He is a spiritual director in Southern California, and he's a good friend. We had a great conversation about spiritual direction and about the legacy of American evangelicalism. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you David Norland. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. It's good to have you. Full disclosure, you are a good friend and somebody that I've known for a while. And we, we wanted to, I wanted to have you on the show to talk a little bit about your own spiritual journey and the nature of spiritual direction. So you've, you come from a religious background that is quite hot in the news now, right? Because of Donald <laughs> Trump, because of our political kind of culture and landscape. You come from what is called a conservative evangelical Protestant background. Is that, is that fair to describe? Yeah. Yeah. The evangelical free church of America. Was it very freeing? (laughs) You know, compared to the, to the, what they call the Lutherans. What's the joke about the, because my dad, my family came from Minnesota and Lutheranism was a little less than lively at the time in the forties or whatever. Uh, What do they call it? The faithful, the, Something faithful. The frozen chosen. Frozen chosen. There you go. That's usually Presbyterian to say. There's a joke about the Lutheran farmer that loved his wife so much he almost told her. Uh, That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think my dad was a bit of a vanguard guy. He was a pastor in the free church and ended up becoming a district superintendent and pastor to pastors. And so I think he had a very lively experience of the evangelical movement. But then uh, since the well, majority, I think, changed its tune. And how was the experience for you growing up in, in that kind of religious environment? What was, mm. how, how did it form you and shape you? Wow, I'm not really ready to answer that question, though I've certainly thought a lot about it. You know, it was very homogene- homogeneous, homogeneous. Uh, Southern California, Orange County, it was a place uh, where everybody looked the same and thought the same, and we didn't really think outside the bubble much, but people were very nice. And my dad, being a well-respected man, I felt seen and known. And so it was really quite pleasant for me. It wasn't until, I think I probably, I started to have feelings in high school in the youth group stuff. And I would ask questions and some people would respond with fascination and excitement and others would, I would, could feel the negativity in the room with my curiosity. So that's where it began to turn sour for me. Hey, David, can you just watch, make sure your microphone doesn't hit your shirt. Like, sure. It'll, it'll I got make, it all. Yeah, it'll make a little static sound. Got it. So what were the kind of questions that you would ask that you found? Oh, I wish curious? I could remember. Yeah. I, I don't have a very good recollection of details of my life. So I have a, just a vague sense of being the guy that asked questions. I was always thinking I was always thinking a mentor. So we'd have different youth group leaders that would come in and and I would be trying to impress them, I think. So that's maybe where the where it came from, and some you of them to kind of go to the head of the class. Like if you asked, them, yeah, 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 I was probably a bit of a jerk. Or what do you call the trying to be a 
the teacher's pet kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks smart and all that sort of immature stuff. And sometimes I get it responded well, and other times not so much. And that, I mean, so this is a tradition that, I mean, one of the things I think is interesting about a tradition like that, right? It's pretty sociologically thick, right? Like it, 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 it becomes not just your worship life, but your social life very often. And oh, yeah. Absolutely. Most of your kind of friends become, as opposed to like mainline Protestants, where very often you might go to church or Sunday school or something, but but the the church isn't the center of your social life. It's the center of your religious life, but it's not your whole kind of life. Whereas in your tradition, it, it, it becomes something that's much more central to your whole identity, right? I mean, Absolutely. It, it's sort yeah. of world absorbing. Yes. Yeah. I think uh, Sunday morning and then Sunday night service and then youth group afterwards, they would call it afterglow. And it was our only social, you know, you would endure a second sermon on Sunday, just so you could be with your friends after that. And then of course, Wednesday night stuff, playing with your friends, you know, I didn't really, I was pretty much a loner and an oddball. And so high school was very alienating. So I had no other friends other than my church friends. So at what point, like how long did you stay in that tradition? Cause I mean, my, my sense is you wouldn't self-identify that way now. Yeah. I mean, I do believe that there is good news. So the, the, the technically the evangelical makes sense to me, but political ramifications are problematic. So yeah, because of the family connection, I thought I would never leave. But then at a certain point, uh, interestingly, because of a construction project at the free church I was at, we ended up going to a vineyard and uh, spent 10 years there. And, and the main attraction there was it was a, there was a small spiritual formation community who did the practices. And, and that's where I got, where a leader there identified my charism as a, as a spiritual director. So it was an important change for us. An interesting story. My son was 10 at the time that we uh, moved, made that move. And he was in the back of the car one day in the early change and said, at the free church, they get, say, I'll give you a dollar to memorize a verse. And at the vineyard, they teach us how to pray. So at the time, it seemed like a very good move. And mostly it was. Other things about the charismatic experience are problematic for me now. But, but it was mainly, like I say, the contemplative Christianity uh, connections that I found there that kept us there for 10 years. So, so you went from this kind of conservative evangelical to this charismatic where there's much more <laughs> emphasis on a kind of subjective spiritual experience, it seems, right? Like a, a sort of subjective yes. spirituality. And right. was that a kind of midwife for another process for you? Because I mean, how would you self-identify now? Oh, geez. I don't like labels. <laughs> I suppose contemplative Christian, you know, I mean, I, I, most of those who I've read in the past many years are progressive Christians, but I see the problems in that as well. So, yeah. But anyway, you're right. That's an excellent description of the, the vineyard experience was a mid, 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 midwifing experience, which is also one of the main metaphors for spiritual direction, that that's what we do for the directee is help them birth what's being formed in them. Are you part of a church now? No, for, you know, I don't really want to go into the details about why we left, but then I, I keep on wanting to be, but my hope for what church might be, I feel like we're in a great transition. And if the church is going to become the kind of thing I imagine it might be, it's going to be after I pass. So yeah, I'm, I don't see how I'll ever return. What, what, what would it, yeah, that's interesting. What would it be? What would, what would draw you into a community? Because I mean, part of Christianity is a kind of, at the heart of it is, is this communal experience, right? Like you, mm -hmm. right. you, you, the thing that gets you in baptism, you don't do yourself. And the thing that kind of keeps you in communion, you don't do yourself. Mm -hmm. It's these fundamental like communal rights. So, so what would bring you into that would, being raised evangelical free 
the liturgical part was pretty much poo-pooed. And so even though I can appreciate the beauty of that now, it's not a part of my imagination. So the communal part still makes sense to me. But what I what I would like is to have a community of practicers and a place where we encourage each other to go out into the world and practice Christianity and then come back and share with each other our experiences. It would be very egalitarian. It would be a place of uh, strength to live the upside down kingdom life. Because when you're alone, when you're isolated and you're trying to live this radical way and uh, you're being indoctrinated or liturgized by the world all the time, it's hard to remain faithful to that strange path. So, you know, yeah, that's interesting because you're kind of, um, you're somebody that values community. I, I see like you know, you post things a lot on social mm-hmm. media and you, and you write a lot of aphorisms, but does it get lonely not having a sort of spiritual community that reflects your current kind of values and identity? You know, I, I have less, whatever my temperament or whatever my Enneagram type, perhaps I, I don't find it that hard. Like even now I'm going on a camping trip to be alone for five days and it's a very pleasant thing for me. So I don't miss the, and, and also when all I knew was you, you go and sit in a line and watch somebody lecture and, and sing worship songs, I don't you know if it's going to be that. I have no interest in that. There was a real joy in our formation community, though. One of the things, one of the things we did uh, regularly was what I call 2020, where we would have a 20-minute silent sit, and then we would have 20 minutes of conversation uh, that would arise from the silence. And it was that always like very, a weaker kind of yeah, de- yeah, definitely. I, I and I and I understand Vineyard came from Quakerism. I sort of was channeling the original without even knowing it. But we we everyone found it delightful because it was just so different. You know, everybody was so tired of sitting and listening to the same guy say the same thing every week, and and so they were really delighted by being able to just have a little space in their week to be silent and then have and to say what they found there and to have that respected and appreciated so that would be a part of my hope to have that kind of experience so you you have gotten into the practice of spiritual direction so can you say a little bit about because i think most people in mainstream culture wouldn't have a if you're not part of a particular kind of religious tradition you wouldn't know what that Mm. is right and it's right right i mean i i guess the the best analogy for people that don't have a frame of reference is something like therapy, mm. but it's not quite therapy, right? It's, it's kind right. of something different. So, I mean, how, how did you, what made you want to get involved in this practice? And could you just tell a little bit of the story of sure. what spiritual direction is? Yeah. So I was in the, some sort of, uh, like, uh, what do they call it? When you do therapy, you're a, a volunteer therapist in your church anyway. And the leader of that was a narrative therapist. So his the language he used was very different than conventional uh, therapy, and and I I'm trying to think of the connection here. Anyway, that led me to explore narrative therapy, which then I saw the connection to spiritual direction, which is a problematic phrase. Direction sounds very hierarchical when it's really a very co explored exploring experience. So it's uh, like I, like I prefer the metaphor of midwifing and being an ally of the, of the directee's uh, soul, as well, the activity of God in their lives, helping, being a second set of eyes to help people see what they maybe can't see, to help them restory their spiritual life. So while I was in the formation community, then there was a woman there, a really gifted uh, woman, and she just saw in the way I interacted with people this what is considered a charism rather than a 
something you train in typically, the, the, that practice of direction. And, uh, and then looking back, it found, yeah, you know, I've been doing this all my life, being curious, being a safe place for people to talk and explore their life with God. And there's so many things that you're not allowed to say in church and, and you might be embarrassed to say, and you need a safe, trusting environment to explore your actual experience with God. So even when you were in this kind of more conservative tradition, which probably didn't create a ton of space for this kind of stuff, you still were mm. involved intuitively in this kind of practice and connection with people? Yes. Yeah, that's why it, it, the idea of it being a charism makes sense to me. It just I probably My dad probably had it too, being a pastor to pastors, and I probably observed that and just seemed like the right kind of relationship to be in with people rather than a hierarchical I'm the expert. I'm going to tell you what to do. You know, let's let's explore your life. I'll give all my attention to you. You're the center, which is so rarely done in our world today, right? I think having someone actually attend to your life at length on a regular basis, that's a life-changing experience. So when you so now, I mean, okay, I'm interested in in narrative, this narrative mm-hmm. kind of therapy approach too, because we're all storied beings, right? Like correct. Like what it means to part at least part of what it means to be a human. Or maybe at the heart of what it means to be human is mm. we don't live in the eternal now, right? Like we we look back on where we've been and we look forward to where we hope to go, and that kind of mm. orients us to the present, right? We, we, mm. we kind of construct a, construct a story that we live in. So, I mean, how do yes. you how do you help people? Do, do you find people are aware of that process? Do you have to teach them how to think mm. about their story? I mean, is it is it pretty intuitive, yeah. or do you have to get people into? Because it's kind of, it seems like it's probably for some people, right? Like a fish thinking about the water it's swimming in, right? You, yes, you do it, definitely. but you probably don't know it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so people often describe their experience, they adopt descriptions of their life. And so it's easy to observe their parroting somebody else's story and to just ask them more questions about that thing so they don't settle on the thin description of their life and to help them move towards a thicker description of this of their sacred story is a big is essentially the, is the work. Yeah, and I'm interested. Do how do you like how do you get about playing around in other people's stories? And I mean, mm-hmm. and it actually, mm-hmm. also seems like a occupational hazard, right? Because people's stories are fragile. And how do you how do you not implode yeah. their story? Or I mean, because it's a pretty right, safe right. trust to go around. Yeah. Helping people do this kind of thing. Well, that is absolutely true. And part of the training, one of the things I remember is if you have something to say, don't say it. And then if they, you have, if it comes back to you again, don't say it again. Basically, wait until it's you know comes back a third time. Then you might consider saying it. So you are it, one is very cautious about directing people in spiritual direction. It's more the experience is more uh, wanting to have novel conversations about things that they have habitual experiences of. So they're the expert of their own life and their own relationship to God. And so if you just keep on asking questions that you don't know the answer to, that draws out of them things they are surprised to see, basically. And there are times when, especially as if the relationship lasts for quite a while, then you see patterns and it's you know, not uncommon to make an observation that I see you keep returning here or you keep assuming this and do you think that's really true? And and by that time, they're often delighted to be made aware that, yeah, I, I do that. That's not true. I know there's a deeper story here. Yeah. Is that, I mean, is part of the joy, the work, the aha moment when you see somebody that, that does experience a more life-giving way to understand and experience their story? Is that part of the motivating for, to do yes. the work? Yes. Yeah. In fact, I, there's almost, there's a, it's, 
there's an immaturity in me that I have to attend to that gets too excited about that stuff. It's like watching the, the, my sports teams play or something. There's an exhilaration that gets me revved up and then I, I tend to talk too much. And so, yes, I have to just uh, hold the, those epiphanies. I have, to be, I have to be quiet inside myself or else I don't do a good job for the other. Yeah, I, I'm curious what, I mean, what have there, I mean, what do breakthrough moments look like for people? I mean, do they, I mean, I, uh, I'm sure people are different. Yes. So, but I mean, are there some common experiences? Are there common, are there any kind of common expressions that you observe? Like, oh my gosh, this person's in the breakthrough kind of moment. They're, they're getting, mm. they're seeing their story. Yeah, it is very, you know, people are so different in the story they tell themselves, even while they're, they, follow a pattern oftentimes the the where they break out of the pattern and what they see there varies so much it often most often it's just tears people have a recognition they start to cry because they recognize they've been trapped by something that's not true or there's a freedom they're being invited into a freedom that they didn't want to give themselves and so it's really a joyful tearful kind of thing usually and how do people find you? I mean, okay, so you're a spiritual director. I mean, do you have a shingle out on your door? I mean, what do you, you have a web? Yeah, I mean, people, it, how do people find you? That's been hard since leaving the church, which is, it's like I, I, an odd thing about church is I've noticed over the years is it's a place where people do business transactions and it's almost the same for a director. And I, I resist that part of it. I don't want to go there just to get found that I, but I do want to give away my gift, you know. So it's uh, it's tough. It's been tough lately. So what do you do? I mean, do you? I mean, do you feel like? Is it like this kind of like? Do you feel like you've got to market yourself, or what do you do? You have Facebook ads. What do you do? Right. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that done, and it, I find it distasteful. I'm a little bit of an idealist, I suppose. I can't. I'm not going to assume that there's that that's wrong, but it's just not my path. I've I've always had this. I've had a kind of a, a little fire in me for as long as I can remember a, a kind of vision of myself that I would reach my potential in my 60s, 70s, and 80s. And that's kind of been slowly been unveiled to be true. So I, I'm basically just holding out for this thing that I would love to do all the time. It's going to, if it happens at all, it's going to happen, you know, in the next 10, 20 years. That would be fine. You know how it is when you suffer loss or lack and then the joyful thing occurs. It's like the joy is enough. And the whole decade before of loss or lack is, is inconsequential. I've had that experience often enough that I, you know, the, the current lack of opportunities uh, is just, I'm hoping it's a, a, I'll be joyfully welcoming the opportunities that come later. But if you have something to give, right? Like, I mean, if you have yeah. a product or a service or something that somebody needs, right? is it, is it almost irresponsible to not let people know. I mean, like, to, I mean, is is marketing to some degree a thing where, like, look, if people didn't, know, if people didn't, what if this could really impact their lives? And they just don't know, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I, I hear that, and it's attention, but it feels like the neoliberal worldview, and I, I have a reservation about that. So there's a there's a things that are just personal and human. I just don't. I mean, like I say, I don't, I'm not sure that I'm right about this, but I, for the time being. I'm not comfortable with that process. But what's the difference between that and like, I mean, I see, I follow you on Facebook and you are pretty regularly advocating things and pushing things Mm -hmm. out there. Sure. Ideas, perspectives. 
So what's the difference between pushing those things out there and pushing out, hey, I also do uh-huh. you know, part, part of what you know is out there and available for human flourishing is something I've learned, a practice of helping people integrate their stories in their lives. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like I'm trying to talk you into advertising. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and traditionally it's always been done within a parish. The parish priest did spiritual direction and, and it is, so it comes from the local community, but as the local community dies or gets para- polarized into political parties, I, there may be, it may be that this is the medium that spiritual direction takes. And I'm comfortable having conversations on the phone and on Zoom or whatever, as you know, having deep, personal, attentive, you know, conversations with large silences on this medium. So maybe this will be the place where that happens for me, because it isn't. Since I'm not connected to a, a small local community, I'm not getting it there. So, yeah, I mean, would you put yourself in the in the Duns category? I mean, you know, when they when they do these religious uh, mm, yes. surveys, right? There's the nuns. Right. I mean, I'm not talking about Sally Field with the, the flying. Right, right. I'm talking about like, you know, people that are not part of uh, any religious group. But within that subgroup of the nuns, there's a group called the Duns who are who are they identify as Christians, mm-hmm. but they're just kind of done with institutional church. So they, the, the way they practice the faith is sort of not institutional. Is that right. is that is that do you kind of fit into that sort of category? Absolutely. Yeah, I I've, my devotion to Jesus since leaving the church is exponentially higher than it ever was when I was just a habitual uh, attendee. I think the things that drove me out of it were like it, it, the the passion for the way became so deep and the passion for egalitarian experience. And so, yeah, there's I'm definitely still uh, a, a big fan of Jesus and and I'm not against I mean I'm all for the body of Christ too and I believe that it still exists even as Christendom dies and I think Christendom has to die uh, insofar as it's chaplain to empire but there and that the body of Christ the remnant always will exist and I keep my eyes open for signs of that everywhere and consider myself a part of that yeah and I mean I think you're not alone in that and it, this is what's interesting no. I think that especially in the era of covid right I mean like these kind of mm. Uh, non-geographic affinities and connections were happening before COVID, right? But even mm-hmm. I think in, in the in the midst of this pandemic, people, I mean, I myself find myself connecting mm-hmm. to r- spiritual communities that are out of there that are in different time zones. Um, and yes. and one one has been particularly become particularly meaningful for me. Um, this community mm-hmm. that in Phoenix, Arizona, I don't know that I'll ever meet them in person ever in my mm-hmm. life, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a good chance I won't, uh, and yet. I'm working with them and doing some things and, and it's really been a life-giving experience. And so I'm wondering if you're kind of, if your experience of the kind of post-institutional Christianity is actually a preview mm. of what's going to come on the horizon more and more as people realize that they can use online platforms and things like that to meaningfully connect. I mean, not yeah. in a shallow way, but they actually discover right. relationships like you and I have never met. Yeah. Yeah. In person. Um, yeah. And I've ha- I have, you know, Figuring out Facebook is complicated, but at this point, I basically have very positive, very deep, very personal conversations with, you know, 10 to 25 people on Facebook. And it's a great source of encouragement. I think I encourage them, they encourage me, and we do that thing that I want to see the church do, which is help each other stay true to the weird story of Jesus, the nonviolent, non-coercive restorative justice story you know we we help each other live that out yeah and you would have been limited i mean p- for all the pitfalls of social media and there are many mm. 
And it's fair to, you know, I mean, it, look, there are criticisms to be made of it and yes. that's totally fair. But yeah. But one of the beautiful blessings I think is that, so you're thinking some counterintuitive thoughts to your own mm-hmm. indigenous kind of community. And so you just got to, before the digital revolution, you've just got to hope some other people are asking these questions and thinking these thoughts and you got to kind of, you know, kick the tires and drop mm-hmm. hints. And as opposed to with a, a, a digital online platform, you can actually connect with people all across the world. that are actually asking some similar questions that you're asking. Right. And, Absolutely. You, know, you don't have to kind of wait around on the chance that someone in a five mile geographic region right, right, or whatever right. or in your or in your kind of evangelical church that is making you prickly and mm-hmm. kind of anxious. You don't have to find wait to find five other people that are experiencing the same thing. Right. Absolutely. And I, I, it's been a great joy these last 10 years for me. One of the things I noticed at first when I left the church is that I wasn't defending my walk with Christ anymore. I was always defending this the Jesus way to Jesus people. And then I found people that were asking the same questions and wrestling the same things and we encourage each other. Yeah, it's almost like in the Catholic Church, this tradition of like religious orders where mm. you know, you have these people in the church that they're still part of the church, but they're uh, they have these unique charisms and they find each other they find each other and they practice this away together, and that that's not you know that that there probably isn't the exact way that the local parish functions. And it sounds like you no, found yeah. you found a sort of almost like organic religious order of friends that that are you know in, in a kind of organic covenantal connection with you. Yeah, I do feel that. I love the way you describe that. It's uh, encouraging. Yeah, I hope they hear this and hear my appreciation for them. Yeah, it, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I, I found that even through the world of podcasting, you you wind up, it's an interesting kind of thing because you wind up having deep conversations with people that you might never meet or whatever. You yes, know? yes. And sometimes people become friends. Sometimes they're just, you know, like fans and acquaintances and mutual admirers. But sometimes, I mean, there are people that I've had on, on the show that have become mm-hmm. real parts of my life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, through, and, and yet we've never met. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the way American Christianity was functioning is you, you meet and you, you might go out to brunch or whatever, but you're essentially on your own <laughs> out there. And if you're, and so the fact that we meet online and then we're on our own to try and walk the way, that's not that different. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Have you found, I mean, have you found, has COVID changed the nature of your spiritual direction work and practice and connections or has it, has it, Again, we've kind of said you were on the front end of the avant-garde online connections anyway, but I mean, mm, has, right. has anything changed or, or has it, I mean, or are people's stories changing in your experience because of, because mm. COVID is pretty, it, it's become almost a master narrative, right? It, it, right? It's kind of coming and taking over everybody's story. Yeah. I mean, I like the image that we're all in the same storm, but everyone's in a different boat. And so that's definitely true. Uh, mainly my conversations are on the phone now and yeah, because they're just we're trying to be respectful of everybody has a different experience and different level of fear and a different level of whatever. And so that has changed that. But I wouldn't say that other than the practical struggles of either financial losses or, you know, too much time at home or whatever, not being able to enjoy the things they enjoy that I haven't seen yet any meta narrative changes in people's stories that may come later. Yeah, that, that's that. I mean, that's interesting too because I like that picture you say that with the storm, we're all in different boats. But but there is this sort of um, 
this thing is so pervasive, right? And it, mm-hmm. and it just it's interesting that it, it it's affecting so many people. I, w- I think the thing I've noticed most affected by in my own life and others is that they have different in their own families of people with a different relationship to COVID. Some that are sort of cautious, some are dismissive, some are very afraid. So the navigating those relationships is the most complicated and the most oppressing matter regarding the virus. Yeah. And I think it, it, I mean, one of the things that seems to be most interesting about it to me is it's almost like an MRI for the culture, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because, you know, there are some countries that have, I mean, you know, look, it's affected lots of countries in, in severe ways, but there are some countries with far fewer resources than the United States that seem to do a much better job. Like, Mm -hmm. because there's this sense in which people are in it together. Whereas we have, I mean, you think the United States, we have the most money in the world. We've got the best scientists in the world. We've got like, we've got everything you would want um, as a starting hand. If it's a poker hand or something, it's like, we've got pocket aces or, Mm -hmm. or pocket Kings as far as dealing with the pandemic. And yet we've, dealt with it miserably because we can't seem to, I mean, this is maybe we need mass spiritual direction, right? We can't seem to tell a story <laughs> right. where we all see that we're in it together, that, Hey, we're not just rugged individualists, that, that this thing yes. is, 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 is we're, we're in this journey together. And what you do mm-hmm. affects me. What I do affects you. So I can't see myself as the rugged individualist anymore. Right. I mean, but, but that yeah. just seems to be a story that's so hard for us yeah, to Yeah, I, I look at that as the sins of our fathers being passed down generations. We don't we don't really have any choice but to suffer through that together because we're people we love are completely convinced of the rugged individualist story and they've reframed Christianity around it and they're very defensive of that story of Christianity and we can't change their minds. They're, you know, just have to navigate the human connection while all that goes on under the surface or in the background or, or in your face, I guess, sometimes. So you write aphorisms, um, and I'll, in the show notes, I'm going to put links to your website, uh, Awestruck Dumb Pilgrim, which is just a fantastic name. Uh, I'm wondering if you had to explain in an aphorism or a tweet or like a quick like sentence, what was the thing that, changed, that flipped the script for you? Like how would you, how would you summarize in a really quick way mm-hmm. the, the, Gosh, I, wish, I, I wish you had asked me about this because I'm, I'm sure i have one i just don't access t- to th- things in my brain right now yeah nothing's but there is mind. but there probably is something though right i mean that's sure. sort of like yeah sure in fact i i can re- vaguely recall having over the years i think i've like i've tried to write what the good news is to me and what uh what ecclesiology is and <laughs> what the christ event means and all those things, and I've, I've, I'm always drawn to shrink them down into aphorisms, and uh, so I've, I've written many of them. But uh, give me a minute to just think. There was a, a moment, no doubt, when I think it was, you know, I think it was the, you know, I read uh, Michael Harden's "The Jesus Driven Life." That really changed my view. That started the process for me, and then, uh, and then get learning, starting to follow Brian Zond and. And real and like the uh, uh, Mars what was his book about violence, God of Mars, like Mars. Anyway, so yeah, it just the the I've, I have summarized it into the came to mean to me the co-suffering love, self-emptying co-suffering love, and the hope of restorative justice. All the changes 
uh, from the uh, you know the simple story that you're told in Sunday school that doesn't stand up in the world until I started to collapse. And I essentially landed on those three phrases, self-emptying, co-suffering love with the hope of restorative justice. That changes everything. Those are your hope. And it seems like there's this flipping of the script where, I mean, lots of people could say Jesus is like God, right? Mm -hmm. But I think it seems like the real electricity is when you say God is like Jesus. Yes. It's not that Jesus is like God. Popular Zondism, yeah. Yeah, but God is like Jesus. God is this. Um, I'd never heard Son say that. I thought I made it up. But <laughs> no, he said something like, "We we didn't know, but now we know." That yeah, he's got a very popular phrase about that. Yeah, but that but that's the radical thing, right? It's not that Jesus yes. is like God. It's that God is like Jesus. So in the so the the omnipotent one, the all powerful one, is revealed in the powerless one, right? Like mm-hmm. the, this mm-hmm. is the kind of and it re- redefines the whole story. I mean, that seems to be. You know, part. I mean, I wonder how much of that too is like is your passion for narrative and spiritual direction because what's liberated you is flip changing a story. I mean, you found a different mm, yes. story that really liberated you. That's good, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how many times my wife can attest to this. I just start weeping out of the blue, you know. And I, I've always been prone to that, but but never about my religion, never about Jesus. And this vision of Jesus as you know, the crucified God, that just, yeah, man, changed everything. I also think it's interesting, you know, I, I, one, I've thought about writing a book over the years, like about adult conversions, because I'm always fascinated mm-hmm. by anybody that has, and I don't care what the conversion is. Like, yeah, my, I had one. I'm in a, I was in my, it was 50 almost before I had a real conversion experience after yeah, and that, 40 yeah. years before that of, of being a member of the community. Because that's an incredibly vulnerable thing, right? And it, it, like to change stories and change identities. Mm-hmm. And so like whether you become a different kind of Christian or whether you have a conversion from one faith to another or whether you become a liberal to a conservative or conservative to a liberal, whatever it is, I, I'm always mm-hmm. curious about because it's a big it, – because it, it's a major story yeah. change, right? It's yeah, a, and, yeah. and I think it opens you up to life. In a way, because most people just don't, I mean, it, it's just not something that most people can um, have the bandwidth for in most mm, in, in, right. in everyday life, right? And so when I'm always fascinated by someone's story that has switched stories, right, or has mm. converted because it, it's a remarkable thing. It is. And I, I have a radar for those people. I think I can tell before they're, when they're in the process of changing the story, I get, I'm drawn to them and love them and want to hear everything about their experience because I have the same fascination. Yeah. And for me, it doesn't matter necessarily. Again, if I agree with the change, right. it, it, okay, you're, you're better about that than I am <laughs> because I, I have some friends who have switched to stories that like, I probably am like not, comp- I wouldn't make that switch necessarily, but, mm-hmm. but again, there's still that common vulnerability mm-hmm. of being willing to kind of put your poker chips on the table right, and make a gamble, which, which is what you're doing, right? You're, you're, you're kind of, because so often who we are is the relationships we have and the stories that form us. Right. And so that's like putting everything on the table. Yeah. And that's, that's how I discern a true story change. I think if a person becomes more vulnerable, that feels like an authentic conversion to me. Oftentimes they move rather to a more defended position and then I just feel sad. Well, you are, um, you know, someone that is not, does not strike me as guarded or defended. And it's, um, it's one of the things that I find life giving about all our interactions. So thank you for mm. being willing to go on this journey 
and for spending some time talking with me about it. Yeah, you're a delightful conversation partner. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.